Hey everyone, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests, and we try to bring each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. And today is your episode, and everybody else's favorite episode, the book episode. Yes. Getting straight into the news for the week, we have a lot about adaptations this week, because apparently no one knows how to make TV shows or movies anymore without getting it from books. Yeah. I don't know that I mind, because Shadow and Bone was really good. Yeah. You're still nerding out about it, like, almost two weeks later. Yes. Yeah. Though the one by John Mars turned into an awful TV show, so you win some, you lose some. Right. But I think the biggest one that I heard about this past week is A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass has been picked up for adaptation by Hulu. The series is inspired by Beauty and the Beast, but apparently goes off the rails eventually. I've never read it. Interesting. But Mass will be working with Ron Moore, who is known for his work on the Outlander TV show. It's a pretty good TV show, so not bad. It should be good. Yep. And she is currently writing the pilot episode. I just hope she writes more than just the pilot episode and that, you know, it does well. Right. The first book in the series follows Feyre Archeron, a hunter who accidentally kills a fairy wolf and is taken to the fairy lands to be punished. And it goes from there. Sounds interesting. It's, I think, the only mass series I haven't read. Time to get on it. Fairy aren't really my thing. No? I mean, I like what she did eventually in Throne of Glass dealing with the Fae, but I don't know that I would like a straight-up fairy story. I think that's a little bit different. And also this past week, Alice Oseman has released the first photo of the full cast of Heartstopper, the upcoming Netflix adaptation of her graphic novel series. Heartstopper originated as a spin-off of Oseman's debut novel, Solitaire, as a webcomic, but it now has four graphic novels published, or the last one is getting published later this month. The story centers around two boys falling in love and navigating life at a UK boarding school. Eight episodes of a Heartstopper adaptation were commissioned by Netflix earlier this year, with Oseman writing the script. The series will be directed by Euros Lin, who is best known for his work on Sherlock and Doctor Who. Pretty safe bets. Yeah. Seems like everybody's like making decent decisions about who they're having, so... The cast is led by Kit Connor, who will play Nick, and Joe Locke, who will play Charlie. So far, the fan response seems positive, and the feedback all seems to say that the cast looks like their graphic novel counterpart. So, apparently they're doing a good job there as well. Another adaptation will be My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix. It has been greenlit for a movie, and the cast has been announced. Elsie Fisher, Amaya Miller, Kathy Ung, and Rachel Ogechi Kanu will all be featured in this horror novel adaptation. Fisher will play Abby, a high school sophomore in the 1980s, who suspects that her best friend Gretchen, played by Miller, may be demonically possessed. This one is making its rounds in the online book community, and everyone is loving it, along with their novel, Horror Store which is also being adapted for the big screen, but there are no other details about that adaptation at this point. I think at this point, Grady Hendrix has three different novels getting adapted. There's also the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires that's been optioned. So it seems like it's going to be a very good time for this author. 
You're going to be making some money. But this is the one that seems to be furthest along in the adaptation. HBO has finally announced that their show House of the Dragon is in production and is set to debut in 2022. This is based on George R.R. Martin's Fire and Blood, which is set 300 years before the events of A Song of Ice and Fire. It will tell the story of House Targaryen. 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 I never get that right. The show stars Patty Honside as King Targaryen. 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 You'll get there by like the fifth time, I promise. <laughs> Maybe 500th, but you know, we'll try. Olivia Cooks will be Alice Hightower. Emma Darcy will be Princess Targaryen. There you go. Matt Smith will be Prince Targaryen. Matt Smith, huh? Apparently. Interesting. We're going to have a doctor up in it. And Steve Toussaint is going to be Sea Snake Lord Corliss Valerian. Man, the stupid high fantasy. Firstly, no. Don't hate. Secondly, high fantasy novels have the worst names. I'm going to put it out there. I don't care. You just read that nonsense book that made up the names that rhymed with things that existed in the normal world. So, like, talk about stupid names. Like, sorry. I mean, I'm going to disagree with you about the Octonui because that was hilarious <laughs> and I loved it. This is just pretentious, which is a completely different thing. Ugh, that's my reaction. Ugh. The announcement came with a picture of the cast sitting around a socially distanced roundtable for a read-through of the script. So, looks like they're on their way. The show will be released both on HBO Max as well as regular HBO. When? 2022. I said that at the beginning. Well, I was hoping for like a more narrow date. They don't have that yet. They're in production right now. They're not going to have a narrower date until after they finish filming. Got it. I have to wait a whole year to get more. Did you even finish Game of Thrones? No. Okay. It's next on my list after I finish my rewatch of The Walking Dead. Oh, okay. So... Don't make me watch that show with you. I haven't made you watch any of those shows with me when I do my rewatches. That's true. And currently, some of the major publishing houses are drawing fire for signing book deals with Trump officials. Kellyanne Conway, Mike Pence, and William Barr have all received book deals, and we've talked about it before on the podcast. But now they're getting some backlash for it. Someone described the situation as a struggle between balancing ideological lines and the publisher's desire to, quote, represent the full political spectrum. I kind of understand that perspective, but at the same time, like, these people don't need another platform to stand on. So, like, I I get the idea of people being like, we don't want you to publish this book, but it's like, Here's if the they've thing. got a book to write, why, why hinder it? Because they're lying. That's your problem. You are trying to sell this as a nonfiction book, but they're going to spew out all the lies and crap that they were already dispensing when they were in the Trump organization. That's your problem. You can't sell a nonfiction with lies in it. Well, it's happened before in the past, and what's happened afterward has gotten pretty ugly. Lawsuits, people trying to get their money back, etc. That's why you don't want to give these people a platform, because you're giving them an opportunity to lie. They were specifically worried about people coming in and saying that Trump won the election when he didn't. In that instance, you have editors to stop things like that, but yeah. I feel like you're not deep enough into how publishing works, but moving on. On Monday, editors and other employees at Simon & Schuster delivered a petition to management demanding an end to the Pence book deal with signatures from more than 200 employees and 3,500 outside supporters, including Simon & Schuster authors. 
certain literary agents representing Trump officials have adjusted their sales tactics because of the current political climate regarding books. A few are avoiding large auctions in the hope of avoiding backlash until after the contract is signed. So they're just going specifically to certain publishing houses like, do you want this? And if they say yes, they sign a contract and deal with the backlash later because they have a signed contract and it's easier to push through even though there's all this backlash. Yeah, because there's legalities. Versus... Wasting their time. Doing an auction, getting picked, and then all that other backlash that could happen. I think it's a mess. I think there should be a way for publishers to say no. And then if they still want to write a book anyway, they can. It's called self-publishing. But they're not going to do that because they want to make a ton of money. So they want to go the traditional publishing route, which is easier. Here's the reality. No matter how they do it, they're going to make a buttload of money. One will make them double buttloads worth of money instead of just one buttload of money. And I think that's really the difference for them currently. Right. Well, they'd rather have more money than less money is the real problem. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Like, I, they're, they're going to find a way to get it published. So, like, I get Well, it. you have a bunch of indie publishers that specifically cater to that political side of the spectrum. So you can go with them. I just think the major publishing houses shouldn't publish them, and I think they shouldn't distribute their books. And if that's the case, then they should be hands-off on all politics because that is the fair side of the table if that's going to be the case. But I completely disagree because it's, it's a discussion about integrity because if you're going to deal with people who are going to lie and say things that are untrue in their books they're nonfiction books, then you shouldn't be allowed to publish at all, in my opinion. I think having that line and having that integrity does not mean you shouldn't publish any political books at all. We'll agree to disagree on that one. You should have a minimum standard that people have to meet in order to publish their books. I don't disagree with you on that. I'm not arguing that point at all. I'm just stating, though, that if you're declining every Republican book, which it seems like is happening right now, that they all have book deals. None of them have been declined. Senator Hawley was the last one who got declined. Yeah. But basically everybody's treating it like this is toxic blow it up if it's Republican right now. I don't know. If they're gonna lie, yeah. Again, agree to disagree, we'll just move on. In the UK, book sales have soared in twenty twenty despite the pandemic. New figures from the Publishers Association show that fiction and audiobooks did particularly well with the value of consumer sales up 7% on 2019, despite store closures. Fiction sales in 2020 soared by more than 100 million pounds for UK publishers, and audiobook sales also climbed by more than a third over the previous year. That's awesome. Key titles that have been cited for the rise include Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, Douglas Stewart's Bane, Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club, Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other, and Delia Owen's Where the Crawdads Sing. I've heard of one of those books, and it was the very last one you talked about. I've heard of three of those. The best-selling title of last year was Charlie Mackey's philosophical picture book called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. It's an interesting title choice. It's basically about self-care and stuff like that. Yeah, I figured as much, but still... But it is a picture book for adults, basically. It's great. 
Total digital sales soared up 12% to 3 billion pounds for the year. The Publishers Association said the results demonstrated how the nation turned to books for comfort, escapism, and relaxation in 2020. And I think that's really true. I think not only did people have more time to read, but they had more of a willingness to read in order to try to escape what we all had to deal with in 2020. Yeah. Plus, you also had this sort of resurgence of people realizing that they need to work on reading more nonfiction in order to expand their worldviews, especially given what happened with George Floyd. Yeah. So I think that's all really good news. I think so, too. No question of it. Increasing readership is not a bad thing by any means. I need people to talk to about books. That's really why I want people to read more. (laughs) And something that we discussed in the previous episode... Basketball star Carmelo Anthony's memoir is going to be out in September. The book will trace Anthony's rise from the housing projects to becoming an NBA star. It will be out September 14th from Gallery Books. In an excerpt from the book, Anthony writes, I'm a black kid from the bottom. I had to fight through some of the roughest housing projects in America. How did I, a kid who'd had so many hopes, dreams, and expectations beat out of him, make it here at all? Which is heavy. Yeah, to say the least. So I got to put it in both episodes. Because it is sports related and it's book related. Yeah. I don't know if it's something I would want to read because I don't typically like nonfiction. But I think it sounds interesting. I think it is something that you would probably enjoy. But I don't know. It would have to be pretty much perfect. Hopefully he has a good ghostwriter or something. And in the last bit of what I would not really call news, but it is sort of a rumor right now, there are currently rumors that the To All the Boys I've Loved Before movie series is going to get a spinoff. The spinoff would follow the youngest Covey sister, Kitty, and the actress who played her for the movies would reprise her role for a TV show spinoff. The book series author Jenny Han would be the creator, writer, and executive producer for this potential series. But nothing's been greenlit. There's nothing happening with it. It's just a rumor at this point. The next step would be it getting greenlit. So It's moving towards the right direction. It's just not quite there yet. Literally, it's just, this is what we think should happen. Yeah. And that's it. I don't know how I feel about that, though, because To All the Boys I Loved Before is based off a book series. Yeah. But this would be based off of the movie adaptation for a TV adaptation. So it's like (laughs) when you're playing telephone with all your friends and things get really muddled down the line. (laughs) Well, hopefully for its sake, it does not get muddled and it just stays clear the entire time. Well, and I really enjoyed the first book. I felt like it was a good standalone. I didn't feel like it was necessary to make it a series. Yeah. Because it's a contemporary novel, so I felt like everything got wrapped up pretty well. And I've only seen the first movie, so I don't know how I feel about the rest. Right. I thought the book was really cute, and the movie was even cuter, which was a surprise, so. We went and saw that one, right? Together? We watched it at home. Okay. But yes. Yeah. We saw it. And now I've got the tag section of the episode. I got ten questions from a variety of tags, because I realized, you know, with how little you've read, I've got to pull questions that I think you can answer. To, to clarify why I didn't read so much, we did get our COVID vaccine, our second shot this week, and uh, it hit me hard the day after, to say the least, and it really threw a wrench into my reading plans, so. 
Well, I wasn't referencing this week in particular. I meant over your lifetime you haven't read a lot. Yeah. But yeah, you also did not read a lot this week. Yeah, it was not fun. You were kicked in the butt very hard by this test, or this vaccine. I was going to say, I'm like, I definitely wasn't getting tested for it, guys. I don't have COVID. I just got the second shot, and it knocked me out for a little bit. I ended up sleeping in one day, which I never do. You, like, slept in, like, hibernation almost levels. Like, I came in and get you, what, at, like, 845 in the morning or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. My grandma had called you because she hadn't heard from me yet. Yeah. It was funny. Yeah. But yes, we're doing the tag section, which is the whole point. What is the last book adaptation you saw? Probably one of the Harry Potters for you? Yeah, had to have been. For me, it was Shadow and Bone, which I won't shut up about in this house because it was so good. I feel like you left that question in there just so you could talk about Shadow and Bone more. No, but I mean, I did get to. What is an adaptation that has almost nothing to do with the book it's supposedly based on? Any of the Harry Potter films. (laughs) (laughs) Period. They're pretty they're pretty good. They're like at least seventy percent. I would say like sixty if that. I said the one by John Mars. Besides the premise, which is a DNA test to find your soulmate, everything else is different. Yeah. So like I've already hated on that once. I'll continue hating on it throughout the episode, I'm pretty sure. It's so bad. What is a book you would like to see adapted into a movie or TV show? I feel like we're going to have the same answer. I would say Vicious or Vengeful. I feel like those that whole series as a whole would be really good brought to like TV or to a movie adaptation. I said the Villain series by Victoria Schwab would be good, but probably difficult given the timeline yeah, thing the, that happens. The hopping around everywhere. I said I'd like to see Throne of Glass adapted, but I doubt it would be because I feel like... People would feel like it's a ripoff of Game of Thrones, despite the fact that they're two very different things. It's just there are a lot of houses and a lot of like political stuff. Similarities. But this also has like more what I consider like magical stuff going on than what happens in Game of Thrones, from my understanding. Yeah, there's not a lot, a whole lot of magic going on in the world of Game of Thrones, but you do have, like, dragons and things which... Correct, but... ...are mystical, but not, like, magic magic. You also basically have dragons in the Throne of Glass series and magic, and a lot of magic, so... But Throne of Glass was greenlit for a show and picked up by Hulu, but then nothing ever happened with it, so maybe that's why I feel like it should be adapted. What is your favorite book of all time? Because apparently I like punishing myself. I don't know that I have really, like... A book that stood out quite like that for me yet. Like You don't have a favorite book? Not yet. Not one that particular is like this is the one. Like I've enjoyed a lot of books that we've I've been reading, but not one that's like this is it. Well then let me answer this question for the next five minutes. Okay. So I said it really depends on my mood. <laughs> like right now I wanna say it's Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, because of course I do. I just watch Shadow and Bone. But also Vicious by V. U. Schwab because that's always up there. Yeah. But I also really enjoyed The Raven Boys by Maggie Seavotter. Specifically, I enjoyed Queen of Shadows from Sarah J. Mass's Throne of Glass series. I could pick any of those. Or if I'm in a mystery mood, Truly Devious probably. But Renegades is really good by Marissa Meyer. So you understand this is a problem. Yeah. Have you ever dreamed about a book? And if so, which book? When I was reading through Harry Potter every now and again, I had, like, Harry Pottery related dreams, but not, yeah. like, 
I wouldn't say it was a majority of the dream. I think it was just like little segments like, oh, all of a sudden I was at Hogwarts. Or like, it wasn't like Harry and Ron and Hermione were all right there with me I or anything like that. I feel like that counts. If that counts, then yes. I said, I've dreamed about Harry Potter for sure. Yeah. I've also had a dream about the Raven Boys series. But I said, if I've read it, I've probably had a dream about it. Like, I remember my dreams almost every night, so I probably have. What is a villain from a book that you most identify with? Ooh, um, that's a tough one, honestly. Cause I, 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 you don't want to identify with a villain. Well, that's not the problem. You might have to rotate back around for me on that one. I feel like that one might be a little complicated. I was going to say Draco because like, I feel like he, was, he wasn't trying to be bad all the time. I think he was just trying to like live up to his family name and like make right. his dad proud. I don't think he was... like If, if he didn't have that part of his personality he probably would have been an okay kid and well he's still going to be a spoiled rich kid because that's what he was raised in but yeah. i feel like he wouldn't have been one of the bad people in the series if his family wasn't made out of death eaters yeah and, and so like i kind of relate in that sense like i always like my goal in life has always been like make my parents proud like no matter what like everything i do it's like you are a representation of them like make them proud of you and so I kind of relate to him in that sense, I guess. Well, I have a very different answer than yours. I said Victor Vale from Vicious. See, like, I was teetering on the argument for that series because it's either they're either the bad guy or the, the good bad guy, and it's kind of like a weird line to cross. I still think he's a bad guy, but I feel like I can understand him and where he's coming from and, like, his background really well. So I feel like him or... I said Nova from Renegades, but she's sort of on the line there because for the first two books, she is definitely on the side of the bad guys. And then in the third one, she kind of wavers. Okay. But at the same time, I feel like she is someone who has to deal with a lot of trauma and a lot of division between what her family expects of her and what society expects of her and all these other things. What hero from a book do you most identify with? I feel like that's a tough one, too. Like, I, uh, hero. Because, like, this could kind of go to the same way as, like, with the Vengeance series. I think, I don't know that there's one that I would truly, like, 100% identify with. I'm going to go N.A. on this one. I think for a lot of people you would consider a hero is they're almost too good to be a realistic person. So it would be almost difficult to identify with them. Specifically thinking about books that just you have read, not the books that I have also read. Yeah. But for me, I said Blue Sergeant from the Raven Boys, the Raven Cycle series. I said that I too want to fit in and have a found family, but often think that I'm a little too odd to have it. So like, she is someone who doesn't quite fit in with her family, and she sort of has to find a found family instead and all these other things. Got it. What is a supporting character that you like more than the main character? So, like, arguably you could argue that Hermione is, like, a main character, but I would say she's technically supportive to, like, Harry Potter's story. I mean, you could definitely make the argument that Harry is the main character, so Hermione would be a side character for sure. Yeah, I would say that it probably would be Hermione, I would say. I feel like there's others that I would really choose. Like, I really liked... Maya in the most recent book that I finished just because I feel like she was very supportive even though she shouldn't have been based on the way she was treated in the first right. book and in turn I think that makes her a very important 
side character? For me, I said, if I say Luna Lovegood, would that be too many times of liking Luna Lovegood on this podcast? It's been a while since you've talked about her, so it wouldn't be the worst thing in the <laughs> entire world. But at the same time... It's... I feel like she is my spirit person. Yeah. She's not like my spirit animal. She's I think my it, spirit person. I think it's so funny that you like Luna so much because I remember when we were getting the pop figure, I was like, buy it, buy it. And you're like, no, we don't really need it. I'm like, sweetheart, literally, it would be stupid if you didn't walk out of the store with it right now. <laughs> so, But I also said that I really like Janelle from the Truly Devious series. I said that the main character, Stevie, is an anxious mess. And it kind of feels too much like looking in a mirror when I read from Stevie Bell's perspective. Gotcha. But Janelle is her dorm mate and, like, best friend at the school. And she is so kind and down to earth. And I really enjoy her. What is a genre that you will never read or you never want to read? Romance. No one is surprised by this answer. I said historical fiction, and no one is surprised by this answer. No, truly. What is a book that you are too scared to read? I don't know that I've really reached that feat yet. War and Peace? You're going to read War and Peace? If it, if it's what we decide to go with next, sure. Well, I don't want to read War and Peace. So in turn, I can't read it? You can. Okay. I just won't join you. All right. I said that... I am too scared to read most horror slash thriller novels. I said that I'm a bit of a scaredy cat, but in particular, The Shining by Stephen King. To be honest, I won't read most Stephen King, and that's not because I'm too scared. I tried to read Under the Dome by him, got 30% of the way through, which is 300 pages, Yeah, and had the worst time. But that was the tag. Well, I guess I'm it. As for what I've been reading, I read The Vanishing Stare this past week by Maureen Johnson. It is a backlist book from 2019 and book number two in the Truly Devious series, which is a YA mystery series set in an elite boarding school in the mountains of Vermont. I ended up rating book two four stars, and I am rereading the series in preparation for the next book in the series, which comes out in the summer. Which I bet you you're extremely excited about. I am. Book two, I felt like I remembered less of what happens in book two than I did in book one when I was rereading it. And so there were a couple things that I was like, this is going to happen in this book, right? And then it didn't because apparently it happens in book three. So I didn't quite remember the order of everything. So I am definitely glad to reread this series before the next one comes out. And then I read the book that drugged down my ratings for the month of April, and it made me so angry. Because every other book for the month of April, I rated four stars or above, and this next book, I rated 2.25 stars. So just trashed my average rating. That book was Strange Fire by Tommy Wallach. It's a backlist from 2017, and a book that I put on my read it or leave it list for 2021. I got this book at a library sale and then didn't ever pick it up, so I put it on this list so I would, and now I know why I never picked it up. It was bad. <laughs> well, you picked it up at the library just because it was on sale, and you're like, oh, this sounds okay. Well, it talked about being about a holy war, and we never saw any war. All we got was the holy part. 
So this is book number one in the Anchor and Sophia series. It's sold as a YA fantasy slash post-apocalyptic novel, but I don't really think it fits those categories. At least not yet in the first book. I would say it's more like an alternative history slash historical fiction, the way that it happens. We're following a family as they go around the country preaching the word of God, and we see how the country is divided between the old ways of following scripture and the new ways of developing scientific methods, because it's apparently against their religion to develop technology and science-y things. So they're Amish. Basically how they're acting. (laughs) I said that mostly we wandered from town to town, and I was pretty bored. Yeah. Again, I rated it 2.25 stars. So it wasn't absolute garbage, but it was on the garbage pile, in my opinion. Just it, was, it was on the garbage spectrum. I felt like I was promised this holy war and all this action and political maneuverings, but we really just saw a family imploding upon itself and like the political maneuverings of a bunch of 16 to 18 year olds. And like that was not interesting to me because they had no power or agency in this book they were just like manipulating how the others who were 16 to 18 were behaving and interacting with each other got it so i did not have a good time with that one yeah though possibly that book will end up being better than the book i'm currently reading but i won't get into that until much later on hopefully next week yes episode yeah in the next episode but i also read a novella called There Are Only Four by Nicole Scarano, I think is how you say her name. It's a backlist book from early 2020. It is what I called a true YA dystopian novella. So it's very dystopian. It's also very YA. These are very obviously teenagers. And I said it is almost a gritty combination of the Maze Runner series and the Hunger Games series put together. It follows a girl as she and her teammates attempt to beat out 15 other teams to complete a maze first, but it turns out that the maze is full of obstacles and puzzles that will make getting out alive challenging. Interesting. I ended up rating it 3.25 stars, so it was good, not great. I'm willing to continue on with the series because dystopian is where I really, like, that's my reading sweet spot. Yeah, you're here for it usually. Dystopian and fantasy, stuff like that. But part of the reason I rated it 3.25 and not higher is it lacks world building because it's a novella, because it's so short, it's less than 175 pages long. Like, it just doesn't have enough time to do the things it needs to do. Right. But I've always loved dystopian novels, so I'm open to continuing with the series. But I think the thing that really sold me on it, besides the fact that it was like those two book series put together, is that there's also this feeling of like eeriness and unease throughout the novella as you're reading. And I felt like that was fun to experience because it wasn't quite the same thing as either one of those series. Gotcha. It had just the right pieces from each to be like, wow. Well, and to pair it with also that unsettling feeling the whole time, I feel like that really helped me rate it higher than I possibly would have if it was just those two series mushed into a book. But what I plan on reading next, the first thing is a shorter novel. It's less than 300 pages, and it's 
and then she vanished by Nick Jones. It's a new release technically from February of this year. And I don't quite know what to call it. It's almost an adult sci-fi or fantasy mystery novel because it's about a time-traveling antiques dealer. So you would think it would be sci-fi for sure because of the time travel part, but the time travel happens because of him and like the magic he has and not technology. So you would think that would make it a fantasy at that point. So it's not like sci-fi, you like back to the future or something like that. Right. Got it. But to be completely honest, the reason I'm picking this one up is because I asked for the arc of the second book in the series before I realized it was a series. So, so. You, you had an oopsies. Yes. And instead of being one of those people who just reads it and then rates it low because I don't know what's going on, I decided to get the first one in an ebook, read it, and then I'll read the arc that I have. So everything can kind of be rated fairly and like no one's like upset, I guess. That's good. I basically am trying to give the arc the best chance possible. And in doing so, I have to read this first. I'm sure the author appreciates that. Mm. I said it's a rookie mistake on NetGalley to do, (laughs) but I did it. But this one is book number one in the Joseph Bridgman series. And basically his sister went missing when she was seven years old and they were at a fair together. So he thinks it's his fault and he's trying to go back in time to figure out how to save her. And then a new release that I want to read as soon as it gets on my doorstep is Lycanthropy and Other Chronic Illnesses by Kristen O'Neill. I know I've mentioned this book before on the podcast. It came out at the very tail end of April, so I'll be reading it as soon as I get my hands on it. It's a YA contemporary slash paranormal novel, as you can tell by the title. By the fact that there are lichens? It's kind of not clear where this one should be shelved, per se, It's about a girl with chronic illnesses who meets and befriends people in an online chronic illness forum. Then one day, one of her friends from the forum disappears and cannot be contacted in any way. So the main character goes looking for her missing friend. I feel like it's interesting. I'll want to see how they deal with chronic illnesses and how that's portrayed. Right. But I like the idea of it technically not really being about the chronic illnesses and being more about what happened to her friend, where'd her friend go and all that stuff. Yeah, it's more along the lines of like, this affects this person. And then after that, I will be reading Every Heart a Doorway by Seanan McGuire. It's a backlist from 2016. It's technically got YA characters, like it's YA age range characters, but a lot of people shelve it as adult because of the writing style. But it's magical realism slash fantasy. And it's about a girl who is sent to Eleanor West's home for wayward children after she returns home from a portal world and cannot cope with the real world anymore. It's basically a portal fantasy novella. And it's pretty short and sweet. There is a little bit of a mystery in this one as well. But I'm reading it because you're reading it to talk about on the podcast next week. Yes. But... To discuss what you've been reading, we will finish talking about A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green. Yeah, and I'm really glad that that I got that opportunity to read the back half of this book because, boy, the front half was just 
set up, set up, set up, set up, set up, set up, set up. But it had to be because this is the last book in the duology. So if it didn't set up for a good ending, then I would just riot. Yeah. So, and it definitely provided what I was hoping for. That's so. good. I'm trying to remember where we stopped with you last time. They were getting a grow lamp from Carl while they were staying in the school. Correct. Yeah. To hide away. Yeah, and eventually, obviously, they get to the point where they realize they can't stay at the school forever. Because and the children will be coming back to the school the next day. Right. They're getting ready to leave, and as they're leaving, they get outside and they see the two ambulance drivers there with a U-Haul, basically. Yeah. As far as, like, I could grasp it as a descriptor there. And they're told to get into the back of the truck. Yeah. With nothing in it, no seats, no tie-downs, just the back of the truck. And if you've ever watched any of those YouTube videos where people are in the back of U-Haul trucks while they're driving around, it's not safe. Not even it's kind of. It's definitely not comfortable. No. And they definitely are made out, and I, I apologize, Hank, but I think you screwed this one up on details, that it's not so bad to sit in the back of this U-Haul truck. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you on that. Do you think he described it as, like, bouncing around all over the place and sliding back and forth with traffic? I don't think he described it as being okay. He didn't describe it as bad, which is what it would be, I would imagine, based on experiences from YouTube videos that exist in the world. They end up driving them. I forget to where. Where do they end up driving them to? Is it to the high-rise? Yes. That they stay in? Okay. A high-rise apartment, and they end up getting brought in in a giant, like, fake cake yeah, for the birthday of the person that has not been living there for literal months. Yeah. Which I thought was really funny. But technically what happens before that is we find out about Carl's brother. Yeah, which you talked about like I had found out about last week. And then I realized that I was like, well, here's the section Liberty was referencing. <laughs> like I had an idea, obviously, like I knew that he existed, but I didn't know like to what level of it. I guess. He's definitely more powerful than Carl. Yeah. On purpose. He's the the check and balance, basically, 100% for what Carl was doing. And if he failed, which he did, that he was supposed to basically just step in and wipe him off the face of the planet and set things into motion his own way by his own rules, which, as we learn, are a lot less restrictive than Carl's. Yes. In turn, making Carl's job more interesting and difficult than it should be. And we kind of have Carl breaking it down for April and Maya, discussing the difference between them and Carl's history. And April wants to know what the point is. And they're saying that they have to get rid of Altus to sort of create an equilibrium again so that you're not more likely to destroy yourselves as a human race so that Carl's brother will leave you alone. Uh, basically, it's more of a method to bump him off the track and be like, okay, well, now you just cruise along and just watch from now on instead of being like intervening in literally everything that happens. Right. Oh, I forgot. Miranda does the uh, gassed up condom balloons to send out some messages in the back half of the book. Yeah, to get the text messages out. That's the only way she can communicate without Altus knowing. Yeah. I feel like if anyone saw her doing that, though, it would have been pretty obvious. All you'd have to have done is been outside. Yeah, exactly. And seen random carbonated condoms flying out the window. That's what she uses. She uses 
carbon dioxide, like carbon, well, from the sparkling water or whatever systems, right? Like the canisters. She took a canister from the soda stream, but yeah. she didn't use CO2. She attached the adapter to a low-pressure hydrogen tank. To fill those in- individual canisters up. Yeah. Okay, got it. I remember that now, so that's right. She had to be a little stealthy about it before she was not stealthy at all. Right, but of course, no one notices because they're too busy worrying about themselves and being in the Altus space as well. You say that, but they do eventually find out, kind of, or they have their suspicions at least. Right. Because Miranda's story in the back half of the book is not so pretty. It is very bad for Miranda. Yeah. I feel the worst for Miranda out of everybody. Because it's almost like being trapped in your own mind. Well, and the reality is, like, the only person you can leave, like, clues for to try to help or get in contact with somebody was Andy. And it's like, come on, he's not the brightest He's out of not the bunch. doing the best in this one either. No. I would argue that he's doing the best when it comes to, like, lifestyle. I think the only thing that was negative about it was, like, the way he took care of himself. Because of said lifestyle, I guess? I don't know. It's kind of a weird situation. I wouldn't want to be strapped to a machine for eight or more hours a day like Andy was. Yeah. I feel like that was his real downfall throughout the book. But you do have, pretty quickly in this back half, Miranda getting a sort of walk through the server farm by Peter Petrowicki. And I think that's the moment when she realized, oh, they're never going to let her leave if they're showing her this. 100%. Because it turns out the server farm is humans. Yeah. Humans' brains are powering the servers. Brains have way more processing power than a processor ever would in a server. Well, and now with this technology, it just enhances it and makes it easier to control. Right. On top of that, I think that's kind of where Miranda realizes she got caught. They definitely already had their suspicions, I feel like, before she ever made it to Valverde, but I feel like the whole trick with the condom balloons definitely didn't help. Yeah. Because you ought to think they were still monitoring all the cellular service going out of the country as well. Because, like, why wouldn't you if you're running something so secretive like that in the background? Or if anything, maybe, you know, Carl's brother brought it to his attention because at a cellular level. That's definitely possible. Yeah. I also like the levels of communication that are being used between the differences. Like Carl is doing like books and things and his brother's like, I'll just send an email. Right. Right. I'm like, that's so much more convenient. Definitely more convenient. I also feel like definitely showing more of a controlling hand. Yeah. And being less like in the background than Carl. Yeah, instead of being kind of, like, guided along the path, it's, like, being shoved down the path. Differences, yeah. Well, I feel like also it gives you less of a choice than the book does. Carl's like, listen, the road forks, but the better decision is to go this way. (laughs) His brother's like, go that way, stupid. Yeah. (laughs) While they're in the high-rise apartment, Andy comes over because the book told him to. And they all meet up and try to figure out how to get rid of Altus. And he's like, well, I have $150 million if that helps. Yeah. And April realized she has an audience. And so she needs to get back into doing all the social media stuff and all the video stuff that she did before in order to figure out a way to outwit Altus. She also kind of eventually gets to figure out how to use her powers to kind of control 
which people see what type situations as well, like how she's responding to certain groups to motivate them to be more on her side and that kind of stuff. She's definitely more in control of her presentation as this sort of round of social media goes. And she spends a lot more time kind of cultivating her persona. Right. And cultivating her audience because she creates this survey and then kind of goes through and calls it down and narrows people down into like their thoughts on Altus and what drives their concerns and turns them into machines that get everyone geared together to discuss the problems with Altus on social media, which is kind of disconcerting. Yep. And you also have the moment where the thread needs Andy to get into the top 50, but he's got that problem where he is going up against all these people who are famous and they're selling stupid stuff on the Altus space. Like buttons and things. Yeah. For a lot of money because you will have bought it from like Kanye or whoever. Because you know Kanye would totally do that. (laughs) And trying to buy their space through their followers. Yeah. Into the top 50. Right. Andy kind of comes out with a breezy spring day that's a messed up version of it so that he can talk crap about the people who are trying to buy their way in versus earning their way in. Yeah. But he still has trouble cracking the top 50 and securing his spot by the deadline. And so number one, or one for the thread, somehow convinces Justin Bieber to tweet, hanging out in the Altus space Breezy Spring Day is amazing. Go check it out. So using Justin Bieber's fame to earn him a spot, which it's like, okay, how much power does one have? Is one Justin Bieber? So I always thought something was fishy about the thread, period. And I'm glad the ending told me what it was. Right. I I wasn't certain it was the way it was, but at the same time, I'm like, there's, there's some manipulation going on. Like, there's no way Justin Bieber is a part of this thread group that's going to be, like, capable of just being able to go... You never thought one was Justin Bieber? No, I never thought one was Justin Bieber. And I never thought one was, like, the agent of Justin Bieber or, like, a famous person that would be able to get in contact with Justin Bieber to do it. Like, I just thought there was, like, some type of manipulation that went on to make that happen. Whether it was, like, blackmailing Justin Bieber or, like, you owe me this favor type situation. Like, there was something else going on. Yeah. I don't want to blurt out the spoiler yet because we're not there yet, but still. Yeah, yeah. I definitely thought it was weird, but the first time I read it, I was like, the thread has a lot of power. Who knows? Right. And one being, like, the main figurehead of the thread, I was like, I don't know, maybe it's someone super powerful. Yeah. And then Andy goes into the Altus space, and that's when he kind of falls in love with Altus, despite the fact that, like, before he was just addicted, I feel like. And now it's, like, an addiction combined with, like, love for what he gets to spend his time doing. Also, a love for what he feels like he could do in the future with that. Yeah. And how... He could be a better person with Altus space. Yeah, the possibilities were like kind of an endless option for him, more or less. Yeah. Eventually, we realize that Miranda is trapped in her brain. They have put her in the Altus space without an exit. Yeah. Real messed up. That is like my version of a horror story. 
like being trapped in your own mind and you can't leave. Yeah, 100%. And she realizes that all she has to work with to try to figure out this problem is herself and the Alta's space. So she ends up, we find out later, leaving a clue in the Alta's space for Andy because he's the one who's has so access with to it. it. Yeah. But one day Maya is asking Carl about Miranda because they haven't heard from her lately. And Carl just sort of has a freak out. He's slumped over unconscious, which is not normal for Carl. Yeah, because he was trying to check in on Miranda per the request of the other two. Turns out that that space is basically a trap. Yeah. He was able to basically find out that she was okay, but she was stuck. And then he had to basically dip. He couldn't stay there. The way he described it, it was like taking a chunk of himself and just leaving it. Yeah, he basically had to lop off part of himself. Yeah. And separate it from the rest of him. Quarantine it away permanently. They, at the end of that chapter, realize they've got 19 days until they have to go to Valverde and Altus. Yeah. And then things speed up real fast. And this is mostly where they're doing the social media stuff and trying to also get a lot of money. Yeah. They also start kind of getting the plots together as to what they're going to do. You have Andy reach out to the private equity guy, Stuart Patrick. Yeah. I was like, Not I, kn- Patrick Stewart. I knew it was Patrick Stewart related. My brain was like, what? Oh yeah. Stuart Patrick. That ridiculous name. Well, he was born before Star Trek next generation. Yeah. So, he was just a liar. Yeah. And he's basically trying to persuade Patrick to, um, or Stuart Patrick, to try to force, well, guide people into selling off their Altus stock at, like, dirt cheap losses. Well, first he has to convince him that something bad is going to happen, and he doesn't know because he's not in the plan for what's going to happen to Altus. Right. But he knows at that point in time that, like, if he's able to get footage from Valverde and give it to the thread that it would be what needs to happen to basically blow up everything Altus is doing. Right. So after he explains that, Stuart Patrick's like, I don't care how this works out as long as I make money, I'm good with it. Sounds like most finance people. Right. You also see Bex kind of come back into his life a little bit only to more or less help the main cause, not necessarily even like... To have anything to do do with with Andy. She's like, listen, I'm going to school for finance. Like, I can help you with this, stupid. She's not just a sandwich artist for the rest of her life. She's making big moves to save the world. Yeah. Yeah. But when day 19 finally has come and gone, they are on a plane, a private plane, that somehow the Book of Good Times has led them and the pilots to, to fly them down to Valverde. Which was kind of weird because, like, I don't know, it... It's another situation like we were given this book and this book has helped us make some good financial decisions. And so we're going to keep, we're doing, what keep doing what it says. So even though it's like we're flying to a not friendly island with a military force that isn't friendly to people just landing on their island without a freaking registered plan. Which well, is just basically crazy. they land and immediately they're yelled at. What the F are you thinking? You can't just land a plane without tower confirmation. Right. It's like we just did, and there's nobody else flying to this stupid island, so it's like, yes, you can definitely land here. But you got to think a small little island like that. How many times do you have planes actually land on your airstrip? 
But they split up. April is basically the distraction. Like, here I am, Peter Petrowicki. Yeah. Security takes her into one of the small terminal, I guess is what you call it, and just basically had her sit down until somebody else came to deal with her. And in the meantime, Maya and Monkey Carl go off to get him in position to take care of a couple things. The biggest one and the first most important one is the cellular jammer. Yeah. Because how else are you going to get a video off the island without cell service? Kind of key. And they had to go through a forest to get there. And, like, Monkey Carl's like, this is the greatest. And she goes, you would. This is probably, like, full of monkeys. And he's like, no, actually, I'm the only monkey on the island. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of funny. Because he immediately was like, no, you're wrong. Yeah. (laughs) I'm the only monkey here. And she has to toss him up and over to disable it. Like, over this brick wall. He basically is like, I'm not going to be able to get out. So you're on your own. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't fathom being Maya in that instance. I feel like that would be super stressful. I feel like that'd be super weird. Like, all I thought was, boy, if my wife was Maya, her anxiety would have crippled her at that moment. Definitely. That's why I'm not one of the main characters in a book. Yeah. But in April's world, she's having a conversation with Peter and his security guards, basically, I guess is what you would call them. And they start escorting her to, like, a office on the facility instead of in the terminal, right? Like, they take her there, basically, because they don't want her to be on camera or around people, more or less. And he kind of wants to have a humble brag about, like, look at what I've done here. I don't know if he's trying to humble brag, because I think he doesn't care what April thinks, per se. I think he just doesn't like her. Yeah. But that's when she realizes that... Peter Petrowicki knows that this is alien technology that he's working with and that he's not doing anything with other humans and he's using alien technology from aliens. But he doesn't seem to care as long as he's making a lot of money. Forget everything he was saying for the past year. None of the security issues matter as long as he's making a lot of money. Go figure. We already knew he was an awful human being. Well, we've had a book and a half at this point to tell us, so... Yeah. But she mentioned she's worried about Miranda, and Peter says, well, you'll see her very soon. I think you'll spend a lot of time together, which is a threat if you understand what he means by that. Right. And then April sort of, when this conflict in this office reaches its height, just surrenders her body to Carl, and Carl ends up kicking Peter's security guard's butts. She does end up getting shot, which I think is probably the craziest part for Peter to see, like, yeah, you've got all these big goons that are going to crap you out of by this little tiny girl, but then she gets shot and still keeps going. Like, I'm sorry, at that point I'd be like, well, this is the end. This is where it comes to right. an end. Like, I've accepted this. It is what it is. And that whole time while that's all going on, Maya is in the process of, like, she's made it back to the building where they're keeping the servers. And prior to that, I think, if I remember correctly, Carl crumples the security guard, just kills him, and not, like, jelly like previously. Which I don't know that he killed the guy. I think the guy just passed out. But by the time we check back in with Miranda, she's having, like, a full freakout because she's been locked up in her brain for, like, a month at this point, and she thinks no one is going to come and save her, but then Maya does. Right. And that's when her body goes rogue. Yeah. And tries to kill Maya. Well, 
her body goes rogue after literally everybody else that is in the server farm goes rogue. That's true. Yeah. And tries to kill both of them. And at that point, like, you don't realize that Miranda is also problematic with all these other people that are in there. It made a lot of sense immediately. My brain was like, oh, well, duh. Like, if she's just like everybody else and hasn't had any muscle deterioration because there's an outside source controlling her. And immediately my brain was like, well, that's Carl's brother controlling all that. There's no way the technology's made it to that level. Yeah. But then Miranda starts trying to kill Maya. And Maya's just like, she's littler than I am, but... Like, a lot stronger for some reason all of a sudden. They're brawling out in the hallway. Yes. And it seems like Miranda's, like, getting moments of herself, but not enough to really control herself to stop, necessarily, until Carl arrives. Monkey Carl at that. No, it's Robot Carl. Oh, it was. It's Robot Carl. You're right. Because he ends up holding on to her wrist to keep her from doing anything she shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And then our friend Peter starts, well, is getting dragged more or less at gunpoint by April, May to the server brick building. Server farm? Yeah. Well, they all end up in that hallway in the server farm with Carl, April, Miranda, Maya, and Peter. But April ends up having Maya secretly record Peter's, like, evil villain, like, I did it, you have nothing, you've got nothing on me, blah, 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 speech. And... That all is caught on video and sent off to Andy. Yeah, considering uh, Miranda destroyed Maya's phone recordings from inside the actual room with all the brain-dead people, so yeah, they had to have something. But when Andy is putting everything together for the thread, he realizes that he's lost access to the chat with everyone else, and he asks one what's going on, and one says they don't want to make the video anymore. Yeah. That, I think, is when it really sets in for a lot of people that one is the the bad guy. Yeah. And basically, one comes out and says they're Carl's brother. I kind of figured that was the case at a certain point going through, but I wasn't, like, ever 100%. So, like, it was masked pretty well, I feel like, to keep you from thinking that. But, like, out of nowhere, this almighty being that just happens to know all these things are going on, like, is making these videos. And, like, I know that... You're kind of thrown off the scent when they're like, oh, it's multiple people, but like, well, it had to also, start somewhere. You're supposed to be thrown off the scent by being multiple people making videos that are sort of. Multitude of subjects. You have a multitude of subjects, but you also have multiple perspectives on each of the topics. So you have more of a general overview of things instead of getting into like the one perspective. Right. But that's when April has to keep out security guards while everyone continues with the plan. And she sort of has to adapt their video since the thread won't be using the footage and has to give her own plea for people to donate $10, I think it was. Yeah, 2 billion people, $10. Yeah, in order to have enough money to buy out everyone at Altus. As well, too, you missed the scene where Miranda... And Maya basically are grabbing up the two other guys that Miranda got there with. Right, yeah. Yeah. And they're trying to push a firmware update that... Yeah, TOS update. Ends up... Making everybody sick. Because you can experience things from other people's perspectives. And so they take the one guy who's incompatible with the software 
and puts his experience as the firmware update, the TOS update, yeah, whatever. The disassociation that he has with his the body and makes and everybody vomit. So you have to go through that experience in order to continue what you're doing in the Alta space. But if you do it, you can't because go back you're into now Alta space. Yeah. incompatible with the Alta space. Yeah. Which is definitely a pretty creative way to self-destruct something like that. Right. And it makes it a little bit easier for them to buy up the rest of Altus. Yeah. They ended up with like something like, what, 200 extra million dollars? And it was like paying off the people or the country of Valverde to not allow people to sue them or something. Well, it was paying off people's severance for the company. And the country of Valverde so that they wouldn't allow... Peter to sue them for this like hostile takeover type situation. Then somehow everyone goes back to normal kind of their regular Your life. definition of normal is weird because I, I feel like a lot of people were still struggling with not being able to go into the Altus space, including well, Andy. for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, I mostly meant our main people go back. Like Miranda goes back to working on her degree at Berkeley. Right. And she brings her two friends with her, with her, which I thought was great. Yeah. They try to make heads or tails of the source code for Altus and then realize like that it's well beyond anybody's capability of rebuilding it after it's destroyed. So. And I like that they got rid of anything that had Altus code in it and put that through one of those heavy-duty like, chippers yeah. for all that metal. And they end up keeping, like, each a piece of the hard drive that had everything left on it. Yeah. Yeah. And April and Maya end up going somewhere in the middle of the country to live out their romantic lives together. And then everybody shows up, which is kind of fun. For one big party, thanks to the Book of Good Times. Yeah. I just thought it was funny where they found the last Book of Good Times because it was in their potato plant. Yeah, it was inside the pot for the potato plant. Yeah. But you do see that Andy has to struggle with, like, rejoining society and being a normal person. And he and April have a conversation where he's like, I'm angry you did this. And she's like, I know you're angry, but it had to be done. Right. I also like the fact that uh, he then was like, you know, I know Maya wrote part of this. (laughs) And she was like, no. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Almost like one of those little little moments. little apology text message. But overall, I think it was a really good serious duology. Yeah, I can agree with that. I I definitely liked it. I would say out of duologies, I'd still put like the vicious duology. Above it? You should. Above it. But I actually liked the sci-fi-ness of it because like I like sci-fi things. Go figure. Yeah. So I don't know. I I really did enjoy this, the duology. I think... You know, for a first and second book that Hank Green's written, like, dang, dude, you knocked it out of the park, considering, yeah, they're like... they're really good. And I wouldn't say it's, like, a beginner's luck situation. I hope he writes more. Yeah. You know, maybe not along this series, but more sci-fi stuff, because he's a nerd like I'm a nerd. We both love sci-fi, and I think because of that, like, he's qualified to write more of it. Yeah. He also has a science degree, so that helps. I don't know that science degrees necessarily help sci-fi necessarily. Like it maybe helps narrow down like the immersium conversation and stuff like that. Like if you don't have a science degree, you probably don't know how to A, say that right or B, even know that it exists. But yeah, I don't know. Good author. I think good duology. If you haven't read it, you should read it. We are reading a different novella, a portal fantasy. Yes. So kind of sci-fi a little bit. 
I say it's a portal fantasy, but no one is traveling into a portal fantasy in this book. It's having come from a portal fantasy and having to go back to reality and adjusting to reality. But I think building a world around the portal factor makes it a little sci-fi-y, so I'm kind of excited about it at least a little bit. We'll see. It's definitely a fantasy and not a sci-fi, but I think you might like it. It's also pretty short. It's less than 200 pages, so I don't feel like it's going to take up your entire week, the last week before your mom comes to visit. Yeah. So it should be good. Good. Otherwise, guys, we will catch you next Tuesday for a sports episode. And then on Thursday for a book episode. Make sure you guys are sticking to our social media where we'll be updating. And there are links to those in the show notes. Bye, guys. Bye.